Alright, if we continue with our list of elements, uh, aspects of the imaginal and of sensing the soul, um, and I think you'll <laughs> probably almost certainly have the uh, got the sense by now that um, you should take the uh, my counting of the elements of the list um, with a large grain of salt, but I think it's number 12, um, depending on how you count and how you slice things up. Um, so number 12, I'm not quite sure what to call this, but let's call it fullness of intention for now. Let's call it that for now. Fullness of intention. I'll explain what I mean. Um, now this is... Uh, related, you're here, this is related to uh, many of the previous elements. We've, In fact, they're all related, but more obviously related to many of the previous elements of grace, reverence, humility, divinity, duty, etc. Uh, in a way, we could say that it's perhaps implicit in the fullness of the meaning of those elements, but um, we want to draw it out uh, I think it's helpful, worthwhile to draw it out as something uh, standing on, uh, or rather separate it out as if it were standing on its own when it's not. But, um, and the reason it's helpful, the reason I'm picking um, or speaking again about drawing out and delineating these lists is partly just in response to um, what has come back to us so far in terms of what we hear people not quite understanding, or um, I know that they've heard it, but perhaps it wasn't clear, or they forgot, or they overlook. Um, so that's part, it, partly this choice, and going through the list in this way is is basically a, um, a, a response to the sense we're getting from people um, who are working with this material. And partly, as I said, it's helpful to draw these elements out because it will um, contribute to our understanding, but also our sensitivity and discernment, and also to the art of practice and our kind of finesse there, our subtlety, our, uh, well, our art. Okay, so number 12, fullness of intention. Now this itself has, uh, we might split it into two parts or two aspects or two dimensions. Um, it's interesting, as I was reflecting on it, I don't know that this is something that we so much um, notice, and in the noticing of it, it will ignite the other factors, but it's something that we may be able to um, focus on as we're working, or working with an image, or with a certain sen sensing with soul, and then kind of, as I said, wiggle it, jiggle it a little bit open up or bolster it or deepen this dimension of uh, filling out the intention, letting the intentionality fill out. Um, so it might be more uh, that an activity is implied in this node um, rather than just a, a sort of noticing it. Uh, that may be the case. So um, two aspects of this, two two parts of this. And the first is, um, uh, well, they're both actually r r relative to the subjective pole. In other words, of um, my part of the uh, relationship or attitude to 
the imaginal figure, the imaginal object, the, the perception that I'm sensing with soul. Um, it may be, as we get really deep into this, that one perceives it's actually also um, a, a, an element of the of the object itself, of the objective pole of the relation of the relationship of the imaginal constellation. Um, but this first part of this form's intention, and I've mentioned it already, is that the my relative uh, my re- relationship or attitude is and the intention there is not primarily, not primarily um, in the service of my growth, my spiritual growth, my uh, empowerment or whatever it is, my um, psychological growth, my um, healing even, or my psycho-spiritual process or whatever. Um, It may be that that... um, intention is mixed in there. Um, It certainly is the case that these kind of things will be endemic. They will grow with the imaginal. They are gifts of the imaginal relationship as it deepens. But the intention is not primarily uh, in the service of that. It's not primarily for my growth, my empowerment, my uh, psychological or spiritual process, my healing, etc. So I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's quite radical it's a it's quite rare as well um, so people often kind of use certain language but when you just ask a little bit or hear a bit more what uh, what their relationship really is it often is in the service of self-growth and and it can be a bit almost baffling um, to the modern mind um, often to conceive of some other kind of intention um, in 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 this regard. So again, I don't want to overwhelm you or have you feel like, well, the the bar is just set so high here for what you're talking about, Rob. It's like I don't know if I've ever come close to that. So th- there is a natural evolution in um, in in practicing with images and bringing all this to bear, so that even if this particular piece feels like. Mm, I, I, I'm not there yet, um, or I haven't. No, I, I don't think that that's really um, the, uh, the case for me. Um, remember, there's a spectrum. There's a spectrum of skillful uses of the imagination, and it kind of gets more and more into what we might call the fully or authentically imaginal. So we're we're on that spectrum, and we're just interested in encouraging the movement to to that. Um, that fuller, more genuine, more authentic end. And there is a natural evolution. In other words, that if we begin to love this this kind of practice, this kind of work, if we begin to start to understand some of the ideas and begin to work with it in practice, there will be a natural evolution over time to, towards the intentionality being primarily for soul-making, Soul-making is the primary intention for engaging with the, the imaginal, with, in relationship with the imaginal other, the imaginal figure, in, in sensing with soul. Soul-making is the primary intention. Another way of putting that, and I think I, I, I did focus on this in, in some talks, I uh, think it was in, actually I can't remember, at the beginning of the um, Re-Enchanting the Cosmos retreat, but some of those talks at the beginning there. I'm practicing for the sake of God, for of the God, for the sake of divinity, 
not for myself. And we can easily adopt that phrase, but actually a, a, a genuine opening or shift or deepening or, or filling out of the intention that we, is actually quite rare. So, so, so beautiful and so transformative, in fact. But as I said, there is a natural evolution. If we get into it, that will be eventually um, something in all this works its magic and that becomes the the, re- the primary intention, the primary reason why we're doing all this. And there's lots of other gifts too. But the primary reason is the soul loves soul making. And we love that and we want that almost, in fact, more than anything else. We're practicing for the sake of God, in the service of the God, in the service of divinity, in the service of Buddha nature. Okay, so that's the first um, part of this fullness of intention. Um, that this uh, is not primarily for me and my process and my uh, growth or whatever it is. Um, the second part is kind of related, but it's to say that um, the intention in being for soul making is is more than just an intention for heartfulness or for passion passionate living. So sometimes people um, sometimes I I I sometimes get the sense that a person has elevated those qualities and either mistaken them for selfishness or just kind of fixated on those qualities in their life as being of paramount importance um, in the way that they relate to uh, organize their life or their practice or um, what they uh, select out from what's um, most meaningful to them um, in in the world, in relationships, in stories, etc. So, it, it, what we mean here is, if the intention is for soul making, it's more than just for the sake of um, a rich and deep and intense emotional life, beautiful and lovely as as that is, and beneficial as that is. It's more than just a kind of um, elevation of uh, feeling passionate or passionate engagement. Again, necessary, beautiful, lovely and fruitful as that is. It's more also than only a wanting of eros or eros only in in the kind of small sense, uh, in the sense of I, I, I like this feeling of eros, I like the juiciness, I like the fire, I like the engagement, I like the, um, again, the passion, I like the um, aliveness of it and the uh, all the buzz and, and the, all that um, in the small sense. Eros in the big sense, if you remember back to the, the talks, we explained this in quite a lot of detail. If Eros is allowed to do its thing fully, it automatically inseminates, involves, uh, fertilizes, extends um, the, the psyche and the logos and lots of other things too. And so then we can talk about Eros in the big sense as um, as an element of that of that larger and more involved dynamic that does involve psyche, does involve logos, etc., etc. I'm not. If the intention is just for the kind of the buzz of aliveness and the juiciness and the fire of Eros in in its kind of um, you know in its more isolated sense, without it really uh, including the range of what is impregnated and catalyzed in the Eros-Psychologos dynamic, then uh, that too is is not full enough of intention, and certainly not a desire just for just for sex, um, uh, or 
again, if it's a desire for the pleasure, the delight in the soul making and the eros, again, that's not it's not full enough. Or a desire um, for an intention for fascinating images, as endlessly fascinating, like what might come up. Great, wonderful, extremely rich, bountiful, um, certainly interesting, um, but in itself, it's too small uh, as an intention, finally. So, the intention for soul-making, in a more fuller sense, includes all that, what we've just been through, emotion, passion, um, eros in its smaller sense, pleasure, delight, fascinating images, all that. Um, but it also in, in, includes eros in the larger sense, which includes logos and, and in, in terms of the understanding Something is um, uh, being pushed on and extended and enriched and deepened and complicated in the understanding, that whole dynamic, uh, with all the sense of dimensionality and divinity, all that. In other words, Eros in its small sense, for example, a fascinating image, might not um, be so pregnant with that dimension, sense of dimensionality and, and divinity and, and really all the elements that we're talking about. You know, so sometimes people, um, again, it's slightly personality style, it's slightly um, a cultural uh, sort of um, influence or conditioning, but sometimes people are, are, love the eros, love the images, and kind of forget a little bit about the logos, where it doesn't, it's not yet quite... Um, landed and opened as something really important and really fertile um, sort of aspect of the whole dynamic or fertile, if you like, dimension of soul, logos, in the sense of understanding, conception, the stretching, the, the enriching of that, is itself an aspect of soul. We, are, uh, we love that element, the logoistic element of soul-making as much eventually as we love any of the other aspects, the delight, the eros, the vitality, the juiciness, etc., etc. And I've also said in some other talks, I think it was uh, primarily on Eros Unfettered, those series, that um, the logos is also important for um, balancing and, and stabilizing with the images and intense energy and all that, that that conceptual uh, structure, having a conceptual structure that's actually adequate, um, can uh, bring a lot of wisdom into the proceedings and understand how to um, uh, attenuate things or respond to things or what to emphasize, what to seek out, etc. But also in itself provides, in its structure, provides balance and stability. So that... Um, in this second uh, part of this fullness of intention, we're not limiting what we're aiming for. It's bigger, it's wider, it's more inclusive than just those um, more uh, more limited elements, um, wonderful as they might be and kind of vitalizing as they may, may be. All of them that we went through, emotion, emotionality, passion, eros, in the small sense, pleasure, delight, fascinating images, whatever, um, they are all, in, in one way or another, they are all um, um, elements of soul-making, or subsidiary to soul-making, if you like. Um, sometimes it's very obvious, sometimes it's kind of a little bit oblique, or more obscure, or less concretely, how they're... Uh, 
how they are manifestly part of the whole soul making process. I'll throw one more thing there because it may be, or I'm I'm, I'm wondering, it may be. Uh, however, uh, as a qualification to what I, what I just have been through, maybe that the desire for one of these elements, for instance, passion, so one can become kind of passionate about passion and uh, uh, interested in it and seek it out. And if the desire for one of those elements, those sort of sub- subsidiary elements, um, I wonder if that des- particular desire is is allowed and and pursued with intelligence, intelligently pursued and fully pursued, um, whether it itself won't inevitably open up to the other aspects of soul making and as it naturally evolve into a more full um, intention intentionality for the fullness of soul making. Do you understand? So one thing, the soul's got hold of one thing, let's say it's passion, and it's enamored with passion, and it's interested in passion, and if it follows that interest, and that connection, and that desire for passion, and inquires into, what is it that allows me to have a fuller passion, if that's what I want? I'm on the arrow of desire, but I'm pursuing it with intelligence, with with rigor, in fact. and uh, allowing and riding that, but but inquiring into what allows it, to, what allows passion to be full and rich and multidimensional, multidirectional, and and all of that. And eventually, the passion itself, that singular arrow, will open up in the whole field of soul making. At least I'm wondering if that's the case, and I have a strong suspicion that it is. But in itself, um, it may well be too limited, and an aspect of let's say the more fully imaginal, that end of the spectrum, is this fullness of intention in those two senses that we said. So that would be uh, number 12, I think. All right. Um, Number 13, uh, roughly. Um, Autonomy. The autonomy of the imaginal other the imaginal object. Um, now, we've talked a lot, I've talked a lot about this, uh, I think it was right from the beginning in Theatre of Cells and things like that, and I keep stressing it. Um, so, this is, this. The, the, to me, this is very interesting. Um, actually, this number 13 is autonomy and tunas, but two things we've talked about before, the tunas much more in the last couple of retreats, but autonomy and tunas. So, what does that mean? It means that the imaginal figure, or the uh, object, the other perceived, uh, sensed with soul, if it's a, something material in our material world or another in our material, um, has an autonomy. It's independent of me. We get a sense of it. It's not. Um, it's not uh, kind of a part of me or, or an aspect of me. I can't reduce it to that. Now this is interesting in a number of ways. One is that, in in the way I would like to lay out the whole uh, logos of this work, we never lose sight of the fact that um, any perception, including an imaginal perception, an imaginal other, include whatever it is, is anything other than a dependent arising. So all perception, uh, sensing the soul or imaginal or regular material perception or wh- whatever it is um, in the mind, it's all a dependent arising. 
So somehow acknowledging the dependent arising of things, and, and that's a kind of unshakable base of our uh, the, the larger logos that I would put out there. But some, somehow within that, we get a sense that, that of the independence of this thing. So again, here we have, right in this um, notion of autonomy, we have a kind of straddling or bridging of two apparently contradictory attitudes, understandings, relationships. On the one hand, we see it's dependent rising. On the other, we sense or feel it or allow it to manifest to us as independent. You could say we the way of looking and the way of conceiving grants it, um, grants the imaginal other or the, 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 the uh, object sense with soul, grants it a, a sense of autonomy and independence. Uh, it doesn't feel right or true to just reduce it to, um, to, to uh, an aspect or a part of me or my psychology. It's not reducible. We've touched on this several many times. Um, Extending that a little bit, we could say that this autonomy, when it's allowed its fullness um, of autonomy, what it really means is we begin to recognize and become alive to the personhood of the imaginal figure or the personhood of anything we are perceiving, sensing the soul. could be a tree, it could be a piece of land, it could be... um, my own body, and we think, well, that's a part of me. But actually, once we get into sensing our own body with soul, the the body itself begins to have its own intelligence, its own agency, its own intention, its own soul. You understand? So that we, we're entering, I've talked about this before, we're entering on other retreats. We, we're talking about um, the... the uh, Autonomy within the intersubjective field, an intersubjective field, two subjects get um, established or filled out: me and uh, and the and the imaginal other. Yes, so t- it's all it's as if there are a sense of a, a respect for and a sensitivity to and a relationship between two souls there. Okay. So this is, of course, related to this uh, aspect uh, and, th- and this um, two-ness that we've been talking about on, on, a, couple, on a couple of recent retreats and emphasizing. Um, sensing with soul, imaginal perception, does not, for the most part, for the most part, does not um, uh, collapse things or dissolve things or merge or melt things into oneness. I mean, th- there are exceptions to that. I've been, I've been through all this on recent retreats, but generally speaking, it, it doesn't do that. It preserves tunus. So imaginal perception, sensing the soul, preserves tunus. Now, there's there's a lot to this, but um, I was, as an example, I was um, going for a, I was out for a walk on uh, on Dartmoor uh, a few months ago, in fact, in the summer, and. Um, Walking on a a, a, a lovely uh, area there, and uh, and I had the uh, the image arose as I was walking of um, many many um, kind of thick muscular t- 
tentacles um, rising up from the earth that I was walking on, rising up these thick muscular tentacles, like almost like giant reptilian sort of um, octopus tentacles. They're like a foot, a foot wide, each of them a foot wide, many, many of them, rising up to, to claim me, to capture me. Um, one would think to suck me down would be the in- initial impulse, but really they were just rising up. Uh, countless of them, and densely covering the the the, the land, the earth surface um, around me, at least. Now, if we're not careful, this could be construed such an image. Um, and by the way, it was it was um, uh, very very delightful, very sort of rapturous image in both senses. It was very blissful in that sense, um, rapturous. Uh, and but, but also sensed as a rapture, uh, uh, a, a seizing, um, but from the earth. Um, but instead of the usual rapture, people tend to think it's up. It was down, down and earthy, rather than up and ethereal. Um, but you now, usually, we might construe that kind of image, and out of out of kind of dharma or spiritual habits or te- you know habitual teachings uh, that we're used to um, as an image kind of indicating oneness or a move towards union um, dissolution in the earth below a kind of oneness emerging with that um, rather than with the spirit above so yes we can see the difference it's down and earthy rather than up and ethereal but the, but we would might tend to suppose that it's an image um, portending or indicating or sig- um, signaling or initiating union, one uh, movement towards oneness. But the image did not proceed forward in time to a dissolving union. Now I've been through this before. Imaginal um, images are m- most often not what I call narrative, moving in time, but I- iconic. Again, there's many exceptions, but um, they're kind of if you like, almost static, eternal moments, despite the kind of dynamism and energy implied in them, uh, or present in the images such as this one. Um, There's something timeless. I'm going to come back to this, um, the eternality of images, uh, later as an element on on our list. Um, But if we, so if we see the image, this image of the tentacles kind of claiming me, uh, see it for what it is, rather than through the the typical assumptions of union or dissolution or um, etc., or kind of dharma that that prioritizes that movement towards union, dissolution, fading, etc., that whole spectrum um, as the primary aim of spiritual endeavor. Um, If we kind of resist that temptation of the typical of the typical lenses to go to the typical lenses then you actually see that that you know what what stands out in this image are, is the tuners it's the earth and me in relationship there's relationship there there's both tuners and eros and uh, there's not the dissolution um, but tuners and eros are captured um, in or through the image it might be more than two, actually. It might be many, because I'm not sure now whether it was many or, or just the earth. Uh, in other words, many, many tentacles, many, many others, or just the earth. But um, And also what's uh, n- what's noticeable is the power of the 
again the autonomous desire of the earth, the eros of the earth. It was it was the earth's eros. Uh, in other words, it was t- there was two there. It the earth, um, she he it had its own uh, eros. It, its its desire was autonomous, um, and that was also. Uh, vividly sensed in the image. It was not my desire. There's two there. There's autonomy. Um, So, Eros, as I said, um, uh, sustains tuners. Generally speaking, there are exceptions. I've been through it before. Um, um, But more than that, Eros and soul-making needs tuners. It needs two it takes two for eros. It takes two to soul make. And further, and we've again I've explained all this before, but eros and soul making will create and discover two-nesses, otherness, um, in an ongoing way, more and more two-ness, more and more otherness. Eros uh, needs to and also creates and discovers two-nesses, otherness, open-ended in an open-ended way. Now, otherness is actually already a given of our existence. Uh, we we sense othernesses. Uh, we sense otherness. There's a sense of self. There's a sense of other. Even if we know and perceive fundamental oneness, and one knows unshakably the fundamental oneness of all things, and can have a vivid, palpable deep, mystical sense of that oneness, whatever at whatever level it is. There's different kinds of oneness. I've explained all this before. It's still the case that um, phenomenally or phenomenologically um, others appear to us. Otherness appears to us. Perception delineates othernesses. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to move in the world. We wouldn't know uh, how to function, we wouldn't be able to operate anything, we wouldn't be able to go to the toilet, you wouldn't be able to eat, um, all that. So perception delineates at a sort of very basic level um, othernesses, otherness. So this is already a given, but but in 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 consciousness, it's, it's an aspect of the way consciousness works um, and must work. Um, but but the thing about eros is that. Uh, it creates uh, and discovers, or eros, as it's allowed to uh, catalyze and uh, ignite this whole soul-making dynamic of eros, psyche, logos, and all that, it will create and discover more othernesses. So that doesn't mean more distance, more alienation between self and other. It's not the same as a kind of unskillful fabrication, building more dukkha. Um, but there will be an ongoing creation and discovery of more and more dimensions, more and more particulars, more and more images, more and more aspects within a beloved other, an erotic imaginal other, an object, a thing, uh, a being sensed with soul. We've been we've been through all that before. Now this. Something I'd like to add here, uh, which perhaps I haven't emphasized so much before, so I want to draw that out before. So autonomy and tuners. There's the autonomy of the other, the autonomy of the imaginal other, the autonomy of the other sensed with soul. 
but also there is uh, implicit in that and worth drawing out is the autonomy of the self, the autonomy of the subject. In other words, here I am in this imaginal um, perception, engaging in relationship with this imaginal other. I also have um, some autonomy there. So very often, and related to a lot of what we've said just, just even in, in this talk so far, um, the, the things that uh, we perceive soulfully, when we sense with soul um, ourselves, our life, our circumstances, um, uh, or some perception opens up, or an imaginal figure, all of that can seem, in, in, in the realm of soul-making, in the realm of soulfulness, it can seem that it is given, that it, it has a kind of necessity. So this imaginal figure, and I've talked a lot about this again, I think right from the start in Theatre itself, the seeming, um, the sense of the necessity of this imaginal figure, even with all its um, seeming craziness or perhaps pathology or whatever it is, um, and don't understand it fully or it puzzles me, it, it it seems like soul is giving us something. Um, and this is related to these ideas about claim and duty. And even when we sense our lives uh, and the elements of our life and the, the events of our life and the, and the paths of our life, sometimes we uh, can get the sense of necessity there too. And my illness, maybe, I don't know, my death. Some, when when we're sensing with soul, this this is an, a, a face of or a sense within that of of um, being given something of something is a necessity, and that it asks of us something. There's a, there's a claim there and duty. But the other side there, balancing it, is that we are in relation to imaginal objects and in relation to um, imaginal figures and what objects sense with soul and whatever it is, um, we are free at the same time as there's a necessity and something is given to us and it's kind of, we're just the recipients, we are also free to act, to choose, to intend, to steer, to adopt ways of looking and attitudes and conceptions and conceptual frameworks, ideas that um, that e- either... Uh, move us deeper into the soul making or less or this way or that way etc so there's this curious kind of um again straddling or balance between between two views the givenness the necessity of what comes to us from soul let's put it that way and um our freedom to uh, steer guide uh, uh, enter into a develop, you know, um, hold a certain attitude, adopt a certain attitude to choose, to intend, etc. So this is something that, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's, I think it's a very significant aspect of the whole soul making business. Um, it's related a little bit, I want to linger on this just a little while, it's related a little bit to um, ethics, actually, and values. So I'll explain, try to be brief, and I may well come back to this in the future, um, but I'll try to be brief now. Um, so implicit in, or fundamental to the very possibility of ethics, is, in other words, our 
uh, just the whole idea of ethics, of right and wrong, and um, choosing rightly or wrongly, or uh, etc. Uh, fundamental, implicit to that is the perspective of the possibility of free will. No free will. The whole kind of realm of philosophy of ethics is is, is pointless because it's like human beings can't choose. So the perspective of the possibility of our free will is is fundamental and implicit in the very possibility of any ethical discussion or or whatever. Because if everything, every um, response or feeling or intention, impulse is, is totally conditioned, if we solely adopt that view that everything I think um, all my responses, if I hate something, if I desire something, any feeling I have, all that is just conditioned from past history and present input um, in, in, from the environment and from others. It, if I just have that view, that everything is uh, conditioned that way, then there can be no possibility of making ethical choices, right? You get that? Um, so that, you know, that that's implicit when we hear... Um, ethical stories that move us, for instance, and a beautiful uh, passage from Viktor Frankl's *Man in Search of Meaning*, when he talks about being in Auschwitz, being in the concentration camps, and he says something. Excuse me, I won't say it so well, but he says something um, like, "We who lived through the camps, we we remember those who uh, had nothing." had almost nothing, uh, who were sick and, and weary and in the same boat as we were. And yet they went through, uh, they went around giving away their last piece of bread or comforting, consoling others. And they bear testament. Uh, such acts that human beings are capable of bear, bear uh, uh, witness to the fact that you can take everything away from a human being um, except their freedom to choose their own way. Whatever the circumstances are, there is that freedom. Uh, and, and the beauty of that, we can choose what is noble, uh, what we value, we can choose what we feel deeply uh, is right, and that can transcend any other concern in our life. So I hope to come back to this area um, as I said, but I just want to say a little bit now. So, the question of free will versus determinism um, is kind of an open one, and I'll say a couple of things about that. Um, All we can say at this point, I think, is that neither extreme view, that of like complete determinational conditionality, everything is just conditioned, all my impulses, all my thoughts, all my feelings, um, or that of a total free will. I'm always completely free, and I am the one who's solely responsible. I'm purely self-determined. Um, I don't think we can, at this point, really say uh, any any of either of those is solely or ultimately true. And that in any particular situation, the exact balance, the exact mix or relationship of those inputs from so to speak, the self, and from, so to speak, conditions, is too complex to fathom. Um, They are, however, therefore, both available to us, both these views, the view of um, self-determination, self-choice, and the view of conditionality. They're available to us separately as views, or together, kind of fused, if they're held lightly as perspectives. And And there are also views that go beyond both of them, 
So uh, emptiness to me and no self, uh, that teaching doesn't stop at just everything is just conditions. Um, everything, you're just a process of conditioned elements, conditioned from your past and conditioned from uh, the environment. And so there's no self, there's no self-choice, there's no free will. Um, Conditions, too, are empty. Any of those kind of dots or elements you might want to say are the conditioning factors, um, when pro, they are recognized to be empty, too. So there's, there's a whole view even beyond these two. Um, and people often get a little, I, I feel a little silly with this insistence on that there's no such thing as free will. It's too extreme a view, and it just doesn't bear uh, witnessing, honest, authentic introspection. Um, the uh, idea or the view that there is no free will, everything is dependent on condition, is a skillful view to adopt at, at certain times. It, uh, it can really help with blame, and I've talked and written about this before. It's a way of looking, skillful at times. At other times, the view of free will is um, skillful. They're kind of opposite, both true and both adoptable. Um, so I, I think it's really important to bring some intelligence here and, and some actual honesty and uh, discernment, actual clarity of, of, of seeing there. But sometimes you get certain spiritual schools or even within Buddhism that kind of lean uh, way too much on this insistence that there is no free will. And um, not only is it a little um, short-sighted, um, it's... It's and and not particularly intelligent, but it's also uh, it's not very beautiful. It doesn't open up much beauty. It doesn't also neither does it open up much soul making potential, which is what the connection I want to make. Because just like ethics, soul making needs a perspective of the possibility, to some extent, of individual free will. And, at the same time, a view that to some extent regards the circumstance of our lives and our individuality and the imaginal figures that come to us as given to us by the soul, by the God, by divinity, by Buddha nature, whatever words we want to use. Yes? Soul-making needs a perspective of the possibility of both. To some extent, individual free will, and to some extent, this givenness um, uh, of of our lives, of our circumstances, of our fate, of the images that come, etc. It is in this balance of self and other, really the balance of the autonomies of self and imaginal figure, um, while the two are at the same time somehow not separate. It's in that balance and that kind of straddling again, the balance of self and other, both autonomies and, and, and at the same time somehow not separate. It's in, in that mix or balance or kind of um, meta view, if you like, that soul-making and imaginal practice is possible and fertile. So the autonomy of self and the autonomy of other. Um, soul draws us. There is a, 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 a telos that we can um, sense in, in the way soul draws us or, or, or draws us on 
or towards something, or in hindsight we can see that, or so gives us, again, our circumstances, our individuality, our, the trajectory of our lives, our fate, our images. And, at the same time, we assent with, with our free will. We have to assent to soul-making. Yes? So all, all this relates to, um, actually another element of the list that I'll come back to, um, a deep and central notion, which I've mentioned before as well, of participation. Um, it's all wrapped up in that, in, in a sense. Uh, we participate in soul, we participate in the divine, we participate um, in all the dimensions of our being, aspects of our being, participate in the divine or in soul or in, in the Buddha nature, in the imaginal other. So this notion of participation, a very deep notion, it preserves, uh, one of the, the, the beauties of that notion is it preserves um, an autonomy in a sense of non-separation. The idea of participation preserves an autonomy and a sense of non-separation. We'll come back to that. Uh, but the very word, even soul-making, soul-making implies, in, in the suffix, in, in, the, in the making bit, it implies agency and doing. Soul-making. Agency and doing is not, in other words, a completely passive receiving that is involved in soul-making. We need, we receive, we're given, but we also need to do and adopt and relate in certain ways. We um, assent to soul-making, as I said, and, and our free will is involved in that. So, the two-ness of, of soul-making, of imagined work, of, of sensing the soul, um, preserves, to some extent, my autonomy, the subject's autonomy, as well as that, for example, of the imaginal figure of, of the other. Um, it preserves, emphasizes, requires my choosing, my will, um, my consciously orienting, my deliberately considering and viewing and adopting a certain way of looking and stance, etc. and all that. You understand? So there's two autonomies there that are necessary. Okay, um, number, I think, 14 um, on our list. Now, many of these elements, um, perhaps you've already heard how, how some of them are kind of, if you like, as I said, implicit in, in each other, or you could say, well, that's part of that, or whatever. Others, if you like, qualify each other. Um, this is an aspect of the soul meat soul making, this is an aspect of sensing the soul, this is an aspect of imaginal, uh, the imaginal constellation, at the same time as that, which is opposite to this, um, is as well. So many of these elements kind of um, interpenetrate, many of them kind of qualify each other, or balance each other, or, or kind of, um, yeah, I don't know what that, polarize, in, that's not really the right word, but um, give complexity to Con, you know, the richness of kind of paradox, that's maybe uh, a good way of putting paradoxical, um, in, in, um, apparently self-contradictory uh, uh, is the relationship between some of these elements. So, number 14, we've said already that, that despite the dependent origination, 
there's one paradox already, despite its independent origination, there is the sense of and the granting of independence uh, and autonomy of the uh, imaginal other, the object sense with soul. And yet, number 14, uh, the boundaries are not definite. The boundaries are not definite. Okay? Um, so indefinite boundaries is, is the 14th element on our list, uh, if we're counting roughly uh, like that. Um, boundaries between the, the subject, the self, if you like, uh, and the other or the imaginal figure, that boundary is not a definite boundary. Um, but also of the boundaries of the um, other, the object uh, sensed with soul, the imaginal figure, and, and in fact of any, any soul-making delineation, it will have kind of boundaries that are not definite. Not just with self, but um, with other aspects, or uh, I'll, I'll try and explain what I mean, but indefinite boundaries. So what do we mean here? Not, I'm not talking about visual boundaries or the boundaries of, of the sensible form. In other words, I'm looking at the tree, and I definitely see the tree ends there. I can see it's got very clear visual lines, whether that's an intrapsychic tree um, in an image, or this tree um, outside in, in uh, you know, in the garden or whatever it is, or the the music if it's a uh, um, music that I'm hearing again. Someone is playing these some music I'm listening to on. Uh, stereo or whatever, um, or music that I'm hearing imaginally or whatever, um, the sensible boundaries of form of the object, the tree, the music or whatever, they may or may not have clear boundaries. Do you understand? Um, if, we're, if we're talking uh, about, about the image, or, or even when you're listening to music and sometimes it feels like um, other sounds in the environment are drawn in. So they may or may not be. We're not really talking about the boundaries of the sensible form. We're talking about the boundaries of being. Yes? So sometimes you get a very um, vivid, uh, clear image visually. It's very clear. It's very, you know, the, the, the contours, the, the boundaries are very clear to the, to the mind's eye if we're talking about visual or music, as I said. Um, but uh, the boundaries of the being are indefinite. And sometimes, of course, and I've said this before, the, if we have a visual image, if it is, in that case, through that sense modality, um, they may not be. It may be kind of blurry and indistinct. Um, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the boundaries of being. Um, soft-edged. So this is a characteristic uh, that I would like to draw, draw attention to. The, the boundaries of the being of um, imaginal objects and of object sense with soul are soft-edged. And that includes the self when that becomes an imaginal object, if you like. Or whatever becomes uh, uh, um, something that soul-making has got hold of. Also an idea. Yes, It could just be a concept becomes a kind of soft-edged concept once soul-making has gone to work on it. So they kind of the soft edges, they kind of gradually um, blur or fade into what is not that object, what is not that imaginal figure. Uh, like, like the way echoes uh, kind of gradually fade. They become, uh, for instance, in a canyon, they become more and more kind of imperceptible, less and less clear and available to the senses. 
You know what I'm talking about? When something echoes, like in the Grand Canyon or wherever. Uh, they, the object kind of shades um, further into a kind kind of infinity, infinitude, some kind of infinity, shades into unfathomability. Um, the further dimensions of it are, we, we, we sort of see them as blurring gradually. Um, now we sense and perceive this, these soft edges, yes? Um, they're also elastic edges, and I'll come, I'll come back to that. Um, so, I hope this makes sense. And again, this is something to notice in practice. And, and the very noticing of it can, as I said, ignite the whole other nodes in the lattice, lead to a deepening, lead to, lead to the um, experience becoming more fully, more uh, authentically imaginal. So usually, with the perception of material things in our environment, we're we're kind of convinced by the visual appearance of sharp boundaries. This lamp is very clear. I can see it. It's very clear where it starts and where it stops. The edges are very well defined to my eyesight there. And we're a little too easily convinced. A little reflection... um, uh, will reflect, it's easier to think when you think about the body, where exactly does my body begin and end? When does food become my body? When does uh, something on its way out of my body, urine or feces or whatever it is, become not my body? When does air become my body and not my body? Uh, Etc, etc. So the boundaries of um, material things, and we also know this from physics as well, they're actually not as clear-cut as as we are convinced they are just from the way we tend to perceive things. So a little reflection, I've written about this um, in the context of emptiness and probably talked about it in different places as well. A little reflection re- reveals that they're actually, um, things are not uh, so sharp. Their boundaries of being are not so sharply defined. More uh, importantly or significantly, um, when we uh, sense uh, other human beings, or even ourselves, um, just a little kind of contemplative meditation on um, on human beings. Sometimes also with uh, animals um, uh, or or others. Just a little meditative contemplation, and and there is this sense of the unfathomability, the the mysterious of. Of, of, of a human being, whether it's ourself or, or another, just to just to introspect, it's like I, I I fade into unfathomable depths, and if I ever feel like I actually have sharp boundaries and uh, I- inwardly a sort of bottom, then I'm probably going to feel pretty strange and um, uh, depressed, kind of actually. Um, uh, the Edges are blurred. The bottom, the top, the sides, if you like, are blurred. They're soft and they're elastic. Okay, so we can just just paying attention to the sense of self, the sense of an other, a human being, uh, the sense of of anything really. It's also possible with um, non, as I said, animals, non non humans, and also material things. Just just. Be there with the sense of this thing, and um, it's harder with material things. But with enough enough sort of meditative uh, depth and 
acumen. It, it, it will emerge. That's it will be obvious. So number fourteen boundaries, indefinite, soft, soft edged, and also elastic edges. So a thing has elastic edges. Now a human being obviously has elastic edges as well. So a human being can grow. Uh, any any being, whether it's an imaginal being or or anything sensed with soul, also has elastic edges, and it will do. In other words, our sense of it, our sense of what it is and involves and includes, and its its depths um, and its range. Uh, must be elastic, must be extendable, and it will be because of the eros psyche logos dynamic. We've talked a lot about this on the last few retreats. How that will, will um, extend that 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 as that dynamic gets going, and they start enriching and fertilizing, complicating, pushing each other. The very sense of what a thing is, what it compromises, what what is. Uh, Included and and the depths of the thing and the dimensions of the thing will extend, expand. Sometimes it shatters first. Oh, my my original idea and conception and sense of this thing it just has exploded. Whatever this thing is that I'm talking about, and then it grows. Other times it's just more elastic and elastically extendable without being so um, you know catastrophically dramatic as a shattering of the vessels. Okay, so that was number 14, uh, indefinite boundaries, soft and elastic edges. Okay, again, slightly related to that element, but but actually a little bit different. Um, It might sound similar, some of it, Um, is number, let's say, 15. Um, And this I will call something like um, an infinite echoing and mirroring. So there's something in uh, the imaginal, in, in, in the perception of the imaginal, and there's something when we sense something with soul. Um, in, in fact, this is much more apparent with intrapsychic images. Um, it's, I think it's still there much more subtly, much more obscurely when we sense something with soul. In other words, when there's a what we call a direct cosmopoesis that that's not a cosmopoesis arrived at through a previous intrapsychic image then opening out spilling over into the environment but so I think this element of infinite echoing and mirroring is um, is present also in sensing with soul um, objects that are in the world but uh, but it's much more apparent with the um, intrapsychic images so, what I mean here by this infinite echoing and mirroring, um, imaginal perception involves or includes some sense of this of, of a kind of infinite mirroring and echoing. Excuse me. Mainly between this image and one's life, there's some kind of uh, mysterious and and infinite seeming um, we get the sense of this in, infinite echo like, like mirrors um, that are placed opposite each other and and the reflections of um, 
in in the mirrors will will, will kind of go towards infinity, or again like a like an echo in a canyon doesn't um, seem to to clearly stop at some point. We can't discern exactly when when that 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 series of echoes ends. Um, the edges, uh, the further or the deeper edges, are indistinct. They again they fade into infinity. We um, we sense that this echoing or this mirroring is or might be going on forever we can't quite make out the edge and this this sense of it this um it's not often primary in our attention it's usually secondary um but it's actually very important this this kind of infinite depth of of mirroring and and mutual mirroring and echoing usually between this image and uh, one's life um so what does that mean? It means that uh, it's related to meaningfulness, in fact, which, which will be the next element of our list, but um, that this image somehow reflects my life or, or aspects or dimensions of my life, some of which, which may, may be quite clear, and some of which are a little indistinct and not so obvious. And there's a sense there's more of that reflecting than I can even, even quite delineate. Um, the image is reflecting my life. My life is reflecting the image. And they kind of mutually um, reflect each other like that. Uh, so this, as I said, is, 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 is an important element, an important aspect to become aware of. It's, um, I would say, intrinsic to uh, the imaginal perception. So I was uh, talking and working a little bit with <coughs> with someone. Um, I can't remember when it was. A few months ago, um, and I, I actually can't remember the context now. Um, and I forgot to ask her, but um, to jog my memory. But at any rate, we were talking, and um, and she uh, described an image that she had had uh, not too long before that of a kind of, um, I don't know if it's Balinese or Indonesian, it's quite a common stance for a, 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 a kind of um, oriental statue that's, um, I know you'll have seen this somewhere, it's like um, a figure that's a little bit fierce with a sword raised um above the head and sort of held like a dagger pointing outwards. And often one foot is on one raised foot um, and the other foot is kind of cocked a little bit, bent at the knee. And so there's this kind of very elegant, very dynamic, kind of fierce warrior pose. And the image that my, uh, uh, this person had was um, was of this whatever it is, and excuse me if I'm getting it wrong, Balinese or Indonesian, um, kind of warrior god. Um, and she, she could tell it was important, but it, was, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't kind of becoming fully imaginal. And she could, we were talking about, she could tell it was, um, there was a sacredness to it, but the sacredness was not familiar to her. And now you could say, well, it's a, it's a culture that she's not familiar with, she's not familiar with that kind of iconography, etc. Um... But also her poise in relation to the sacredness um, of this image, um, she, that, that was, it, it kind of, she didn't recognize her poise either. But the whole thing really, it, um, 
the idea of and the feeling of sacredness wasn't quite familiar. And the whole thing really had not become fully imagined. It was, in her words, a bit kind of two-dimensional. Um, and so we were talking a little bit, and I suggested that um, uh, perhaps she could notice and tune into and kind of um, linger with um, probably the many ways, but really any noticeable way um, that she recognized the image or this archetypal image echoing her life personally, like the personal echoes um, or echoing between image and and personal life, the mirroring and being mirrored um, by this this image, this archetype, this icon, whatever it is. Now, one has to be not too clunky there. It's a very delicate sort of thing, usually. Um, and I'll talk about this. It's like, and I have talked about it before, not to land too heavily on it means this. A lot of this work is really quite subtle. It's almost like we're, we're picking up resonances um, that are quite... Certainly, in their uh, deeper and and in their range, as they get more indistinct and more of that sense of infinity, um, they're really quite subtle, al- almost um, uh, by definition, and um, and so you can't be too clunky in the approach here of just kind of feeling the sense of that infinite echoing and and uh, mirroring, but some of them may be distinct, and and uh, not entirely clear, but you really get the sense of well, yeah, I can kind of see a sort of refracted or um, inflected um, version of that uh, port stance of that God in my life, or in a certain thread through my life, or in a certain um, current of dealings or events and my, my relationship with them. Um, so the instances of this mirroring uh, may be, for instance, very specific, specific psychological aspects of, of oneself, um, personal, very specific personal psychological aspects or patterns, or maybe also be events in one's life or tendencies, etc., to approach or to be in certain situations um, a certain way, or the potential uh, that isn't quite, uh, that we don't often manifest or realize um, to be in certain ways in certain relationships or situations. In other words, there might be something that we're capable of. And if you like, the image and the uh, imaginal figure is uh, part of what it's doing, is it's catalyzing something or opening the door of a possibility or showing us, hey, you know, this, you actually have this in you as well, this stance, this possibility, this way of relating. Um, so... All this is connected with the 16th um, element that I want to highlight, um, uh, which is meaningfulness. Okay, so again, you can see some overlap here. Um, but this recognition of specific and, um, if you like, finite representation or mirroring, um, when I recognize that, it brings the image alive. It's part of the 16th aspect, which is um, the sense of meaningfulness. Okay, um, and so when I um, 
notice this specific mirroring, this finite thing, oh, that's echoing, I see that echoes that. Um, it, and maybe I get the sense of the, the larger sense of kind of infinite echoing and in, as, as it kind of shades off into being less distinct, the, the, the echoes and the mirrors, the mirrorings. Um, then that ignites um, the constellation, uh, the imaginal constellation, it ignites the other nodes. Um, so there's a there's again there's a, there's a, a tightrope to tread here. It's a little too dramatic a word, but a middle way. Um, if I conceptually reduce and limit an imaginal figure to this image means X only or Y only, whatever X or Y is. If I limit it to just this meaning, this one singular meaning, or even a couple of meanings, um, or whatever it is, or five meanings, or whatever, it will, um, sooner or later, and often sooner, it will kill the imaginal, it will kill the image as, a, as an imaginal image, as a potent, fertile, endlessly deep imaginal image, and also kill the soul-making. It will squash it, it, it uh, constrict it, um, take the fire away from it. So uh, the reason I'm mentioning this, I want to get clear because I think, again, based on feedback, um, I wonder whether I've been clear enough on this or perhaps overemphasized something. Um, I was working recently, uh, a few months ago, with someone and they had an image of riding on a flying dragon, uh, astride this dragon, straddling this dragon, uh, kind of on its back, flying, and there was a lovely relationship with with the uh, uh, the person and the dragon, um, but they were uh, completely had no no sense of it meaning anything, and and the whole thing kind of didn't really open up it the kind of richness and fullness of of the imaginal there. So it was just a kind of interesting image, but it kind of really yeah, it just wasn't really. Uh, rich and deep and juicy and multi-dimensional and coloured and all that. Um, and then now, because I, I knew this person in their practice quite well, I could uh, I could see uh, very clearly some um, some some of this echoing, um, some of the elements of, of what was echoed um, and mirrored between their life and um, and this image. And uh, and even when they were describing, oh, and they were sort of wanting to squeeze the, um, you know, like you, I don't actually horse ride, so I should say, but um, you, you kind of squeeze the horse with your legs, uh, with your inner thighs, and, and that um, signals to it, so you're uh, uh, in relationship with the horse that you're riding, in relationship with the dragon. And there was that kind of relationship going on, but he was just baffled, it kind of meant nothing to him. Knowing him... Um, for me, it was really clear. It's like this, this kind of echoing is going on between that, and it was one. One of them was actually to, very much to do with practice and kind of effort in practice and relationship with effort and modulating effort and the sense of um, actually practice having an enormous amount of potential power and really being able to fly to take off with all the beauty and the soul beauty of the dragon and even even elements of practice like samadhi, and yet he was stumbling a lot or, or often ran into difficulties around effort and um, in, in that. So for me, kind of knowing him, it was it was puzzling sitting there, kind of, why, why doesn't he see that? Why is this not taking off? And why doesn't he see that um, echoing um, and that meaning? And um, 
he actually told me that, oh, he'd thought that I he wasn't supposed to look for any meaning in, in images. So it's possible that I just wasn't clear in the past um, uh, in making this distinction between meaningfulness and meaning. Um, and I've overemphasized uh, not to reduce it to, to, to a certain meaning, etc. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so I, I, I would rather say now that meaningfulness includes individual meanings. Okay, So in this infinite echoing mirror, if related to the last point, the last element, um, the, the, we can discern individual echoes or individual reflections, if you like, between life and uh, image, but we're not stopping at that. So, so often we um, revert uh, to an attitude to or a relationship with um, images and imaginal figures, in, including dream in, images and figures, the, uh, an attitude or relationship that wants to figure out what does it mean um, and figure it out and kind of sum it up. And um, So it's not... Uh, now I want to hopefully make clear, it's not that we need to shut down that meaning-seeking attitude, but we need to make sure it doesn't dominate. It doesn't take over and limit. So, you know, another way of thinking about this is an imaginal figure, or something sensed with soul, as I said before, is has personhood. We sense more and more of its personhood. It is, this imaginal figure is a person. Um, this a thing or object sensed with soul is a person, and it would seem ridiculous in our lives to ask, um, you know, about a person that we love and are touched by, or who is important in our lives and psyche. Um, what does he or she mean to me? I mean, there might be, you know, I I might be able to say a couple of things about someone who's deeply important to me in my life, um, some person, but. Um, I can't. I can't say that that exhausts them, or, or it's only that they mean um, X or Y to me. And an imaginal figure or a dream figure, even, is just the same. It doesn't. I would say um, it doesn't only mean X or Y any more than a person that I'm uh, is deeply important to me and in my life, and that I love and loves me, etc. Um, only means X or Y to me. There's personhood there, and personhood is unfathomable. So meaning, individual meaning, um, an individual meaning, yes, there is this meaning, there is this echo, there is this uh, whatever it is, um, may be a part of it, may be part of um, the, the, what the imaginal figure is, if you like, or does, or, um, but we can never reduce either an imaginal figure or a person in our lives to one meaning or even several meanings. So it, it, the the meaning see, the meaning seeking and meaning finding attitude um, it's it's a part of imaginal practice. So I didn't mean to to kind of exclude it completely or banish it from imaginal practice, but more it was um, don't stop there, don't limit it to that. So when it's there, you know, notice it and take whatever meaning individual meanings um, uh, that that kind of attitude or faculty. To, uh, comes up with, um, oh, it means this, or I notice this echo, or I, I, I uh, you know, make this conclusion. Um, take it as just one, in inverted commas, true meaning of potentially infinite meanings. 
that are carried um, by and in a certain image, a certain uh, soul perception. So in this way, we you know we do include that. It is important because it might, in this case of this, with the image of the dragon, actually the individual meaning will be part of what stimulates and the. Um, figure of the warrior god will be part or maybe part of what stimulate as a note in the lattice and maybe part of what stimulates the, uh, f- the the filling out of the imaginal so yes meanings are fine just don't limit it keep open the gates to the garden of infinite interpretations keep them open yeah don't just settle for one tree or one apple in that orchard So we're, again, including individual specific meanings. When I use the word meaningfulness, it's really fullness, meaningfulness, um, which means there's an unlimited possible number of meanings, and um, there's this kind of infinite mirroring and echoing of, uh, of, of uh, image and life. So there is a sort of kind of middle way here. On the one extreme, a mistake would be to kind of um, any kind of monovalent re- reduction to one meaning only. This image means this. Um, or, or is it even several? That would be one extreme of mistake. Another extreme would be um, a kind of refusal to see any personal and specific meanings um, in, in the image uh, at all. That would be another extreme, another mistake. I mean, and I said, if we do that, then probably the image... Uh, uh, will be without meaningfulness. It won't come alive. It won't become uh, open its full sacredness to us. It won't uh, have its full beauty uh, potential or, or its al- the aliveness of the dynamic of its beautifying um, its depth, etc., as it could be. Yeah. So meaningfulness, not to labour the point too much. Meaningfulness includes meaning, meanings, um, and sometimes, um, but sometimes it's not actually clear. Um, uh, we don't have a clear sense of what any meaning is, um, and that's fine. That's fine. Uh, still, I'm puzzled by this image. I don't know, you know. Um, but at least let's not shut down the possibility of individual meanings, individual discernible echoes and reflections between. Uh, life and image. So you can probably hear again uh, this talk of meaning and meaningfulness is related to duty, right? Just a little reflection will make that clear. It's also related, meaningfulness and, and meaning, in fact, are related to values. And again, I'm hoping um, at some point to talk uh, more about values and ethics and and the relationship with excuse me with soul making um but the thing about um values too i'll just mention this now the thing about so meaningfulness is related to values we we find a sense of meaningfulness in in life um in relationship to or part of our sense of meaningfulness is our relationship to um, what we value, what we and what we value most highly, and what's kind of most important to us in our life. This will give our life meaningfulness um, to the to the kind of height of that value. Yeah, 
if that's a good analogy. Um, the thing about values is they're they're kind of uh, limitless. They they always will have a beyond to them. If we say love or goodness or beauty, and these are things that that um, you know for some people and put myself in that category, they kind of mean, um, and soul-making, you know, also soulfulness. Um, th- th- these are kind of open-ended values that mean um, more even than life, you know, more even than life and death. Um, and But they don't have a limit to them. They're transcendent in that respect. They're also transcendent in the sense that any, any um, manifestation will be actually limited in how much it instantiates or, or manifests any particular value. So some things, uh, you know, a, a piece of art will, will always have kind of some kind of um, limit to its, its beauty if you like, uh, or some kind of compromise that it's making, or goodness, you know, when we're actually faced with ethical choices, we're often making a kind of compromise between, um, well, if I take care of this, then that goes a little bit, or if I'm taking care of this, I can't take care of that, and that kind of thing. So there's a sense that values are, that they need to manifest in life, and we need to make choices, and often, oftentimes choices are hard because we can't have perfect um, complete and comprehensive goodness. We can't have perfect, complete and comprehensive love actualized in life. A Brahmavihara in the heart in meditation is one thing. Actualized in life, we make choices. So there's something about values that they're always, they're always kind of beyond what we can reach. Not only can they always be more, you can always be somehow more good or more beautiful or more whatever, soulful, um, but they're also kind of they're how we actually mani- manifest them and encounter their manifestations always going to have some kind of limit or compromise to it. And so this in itself is something very interesting. I may may return to that in later talks or a later series or something. But it means that um, in relation to values, they're, they've got a kind of infinity to them. They've got an infinitude, a transcendence, um, a beyondness always. And that that is part of why we can have an erotic relationship with um, values and ideas like goodness and beauty and uh, harmony and um, soulfulness. So they, because of the infinity, they're always going to have a beyondness, and, and it always allows eros to constellate in in uh, with, in relation to them. Um, and values have a part to do with meaningfulness, and, and therefore, and values also have a part to do with images and sensing the soul. And I'll come back to this. Whenever we are, we have an imaginal uh, perception, and whenever we have, uh, whenever we're sensing something or other with soul, values that are really important to us, that are dear to our souls and hearts, are, are bound up if you like, or expressed or um, refracted or hinted at uh, or shining through that, uh, that imaginal thing in that imaginal constellation. I hope to come back to this at some point. That's part of meaningfulness. It's our, our sense of value.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.